Hey everyone, I want to invite you to check out our brand new online learning platform, Windows Into the Bible University. Windows Into the Bible University offers a full curriculum that will help you understand how to read the words of the Bible within the world of the Bible. It provides efficient and affordable biblical education and is revolutionizing how we study the Bible by helping you to feel confident in your ability to understand and interpret the scripture. Windows into the Bible University offers monthly and annual subscriptions. Please check us out and note that going to the website, you can actually access a free course on the Lord's Prayer. That's Windows into the Bible University, WITBUniversity.com, revolutionizing Bible reading so that you can be confident in your ability to understand and interpret the Bible. You're listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. Reading the Bible with understanding requires reading the words of the Bible within the world of the Bible. This podcast engages the spatial, historical, cultural, and spiritual world of the Bible to help transform how you read and understand the Bible. Have questions or want to interact with Mark? Tweet us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. For more insights, information about the podcast, and bonus resources and notes for each episode, visit WITBpodcast.com. Now, let's get into today's episode. Whenever you read the Bible, do you find yourself confused? Do you struggle to find relevance in what it is you're reading? Do you feel like you're missing out on something that the original author intended for you to get? Would you like to be more confident in your ability to interpret and understand the scripture? I'm Mark Turnage, and this is the Windows into the Bible podcast. Today we want to talk about manuscripts of the New Testament. Now, more and more modern printed editions of the Bible are including the fact that when we come to looking at the Bible, that really what we have are copies of 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 copies. We don't have the original prophecies penned by Isaiah or Jeremiah or even Jeremiah's scribe Baruch. We do not have any original letter of Paul or gospel written by one of the evangelists. What we simply have are copies of copies of copies of copies of copies, etc. You get the idea. And as anyone can imagine, this creates variance between these manuscripts. And so you'll begin to notice that modern printed editions of the Bible will include sometimes footnotes. Other times they will 
bracket off certain phrases or lines or even whole sections. For example, in John's Gospel, the woman caught in the act of adultery. Most modern translations will mention that in the earliest manuscripts of John, that that story is not found. You can take a look at the end of the Gospel of Mark, and again, most modern translations will mention that among the manuscripts, there are actually several different endings to the Gospel of Mark. And scholars engage Bible translators, Bible publishers, engage in a discipline called textual criticism. And textual criticism is simply comparing these manuscripts and applying a set of criteria and asking the question, which reading most likely was the original reading? Which reading accounts for all the other variants? Which reading is the more difficult reading? Now, the reason that this is a criteria is because the assumption is that a more difficult reading that is still understandable, it's not nonsensical, but it's understandable, that the reality is, is that scribes are going to come along and try and make it more understandable. So if it's the more difficult reading, well, we assume that this is the more original reading. But what I want to do today is to highlight one of these variants, that's what they're called, between manuscripts as it relates to a single text within the New Testament. Because while textual critics will come and will apply these criteria, which is the more difficult reading, which reading is better attested in the earliest manuscripts, um, which reading accounts for all the others. One of the things that oftentimes gets overlooked by these textual critics is looking at readings within the cultural and spiritual context of the world of the Bible. Now, hopefully I haven't lost any of you yet, because actually we're not going to get super technical on this. That's not the interest. This, is, this isn't this is a show about the fine points of evaluating manuscripts. But I want to use this singular example to show you sometimes the challenges that face us when we begin to look at the contextual world of the Bible. And so what we're going to look at today is Luke 2.14. This is the proclamation of the angels with the birth of Jesus. If you grew up reading the King James, or you grew up with the Charlie Brown's Christmas, where Linus famously quotes the the, the Lucan birth story, you are familiar with something that reads like this. The angels proclaim glory to God in the highest, on earth peace, goodwill to men or to mankind. Now, more modern translations of 
Luke 2.14, provide a different reading. And that reading is, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Let me read the first one again. Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace, goodwill to mankind. There's three parts to that angelic proclamation. The second one, which is the preferred one now in most modern translations, is glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Here, it's a two-part proclamation. And notice that the two-part proclamation only extends peace to the men with whom he is pleased. Now, the difference between the three-part proclamation and the two-part proclamation is literally one letter in Greek. The two-part proclamation includes a final sigma. Think of the letter S at the end of the word. So it's um, evdokias. In the three-part proclamation from the King James and Charlie Brown, that sigma is not there. So it's evdokia. One letter. Notice the difference that it makes. Now, you may ask the question, well, why have more modern translations opted for the two-part proclamation as opposed to the older three-part proclamation? The reason being is that the two-part proclamation is in the oldest manuscripts of the Gospel of Luke. And the assumption is that older is closer to the original and therefore is superior. Now, understand that that may seem like good sound reasoning, but let me explain it like this. Let's say we have a manuscript of the Gospel of Luke that, say, dates to around 150 A.D., and we have another manuscript that dates to around 300 AD. If that manuscript from 150, even though we don't have all of the manuscripts that it's based on beforehand, but let's say from Luke's actual writing down to that manuscript in 150, it passed through 12 different scribal hands. And the one from 300 only passed through six scribal hands. Which is the better? So, while it makes sense that earlier, for all things being equal, probably may contain a better attested reading, it's not necessarily the case. Now, another reason why scholars have gravitated to this language of the men with whom he is pleased is because we actually find language similar to this in the sectarian Dead Sea Scrolls. Now understand that the sectarian Dead Sea Scrolls reflect the worldview of a community that most scholars identify with this group known as the Essenes that we read about in Josephus and Philo, Pliny, and 
this sectarian group looks at the world as divided between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. Moreover, they believe in a double predestination. So if you belong to the sons of light, which is their name for themselves, you were foreordained by God to be elected a child of light. If you belong to the children of darkness, you also were foreordained. Now, the children of darkness are going to show forth God's glory when he judges them and, and, and wipes them out. The children of light are going to show forth God's glory when he redeems them, which he's already started doing by electing them to be the children of light. And so not only do we have this dualism of light-darkness, but we have this double predestination. And this is something that was chosen by God, and frankly, you have no say in where you're at. It's kind of like, thanks for playing. And among the sectarian scrolls, we find this language, the sons of his will, or the sons of your will. And I just want to read you a couple of passages. These both come from a collection of hymns found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're called the Thanksgiving hymns because many of them begin with, I thank you, O God, because. So here is one passage where we find this phrase, the sons or the children of his will, very similar to the men with whom he is pleased in the two-part angelic proclamation. What creature of clay can do wonders? He is in iniquity from his maternal womb and in guilt of unfaithfulness right to old age. But I know that justice does not belong to man, nor to a son of man, a perfect path. To God most high belongs all the acts of justice, and the path of man is not secure except by the spirit which God creates for him to perfect the path of the sons of men, so that all his creatures come to know the strength of his power and the abundance of his compassion with all the sons of his good pleasure, the sons of his will, literally. Now understand, the anthropology of these Thanksgiving hymns is basically looking at the fact that when a child is born by passing through the birth canal, he is impure. And so you frequently find the description being, I am a vessel of impurity, I am nothing more than kneaded clay, and so in birth, humanity is in this impure state. But what happens is, again, within the anthropology of the Thanksgiving hymns, that God gives the divine spirit that animates this impure mass of humanity and elevates it and that means that God has elected this individual, God has chosen this individual by his grace and has elevated him from this putrid flesh, as we hear spoken about, to now the sons of his will. Let's look at another one, again from the Thanksgiving hymns. I give thanks to you, O my God, for you have dealt wonderfully with dust. 
and you have worked so very powerfully with vessels of clay. And I, what am I that you taught me the basis of your truth and have instructed me in your wonderful works? You have put thanksgiving into my mouth, praise on my tongue, the utterances of my lips in the place of jubilation. I will chant your kindness. I will ponder your might the whole day. I will bless your name continually. I will recount your glory among the sons of men. And in your abundant goodness, my soul will delight. I know that truth is in your mouth and justice is in your hand and in your thoughts, all knowledge and in your might, all strength and all glory is in you. In your wrath are all punishing judgments, but in your goodness, abundance of forgiveness and your compassion for all the sons of your pleasure. There it is again. For you have taught them the basis of your truth and have instructed them in your wonderful mystery. So understand the language men of your will or the men of your good pleasure that we find in the in the, in the second angelic proclamation the two-part angelic proclamation is reflective of this very sectarian idea that we find within ancient Judaism now based upon then the discipline of textual criticism that says that the earlier manuscripts tend to be better based upon the fact that we find this language, the men of his will, the men of his pleasure within the Dead Sea Scrolls, it seems like an open and shut case, right? That should be the better reading. So we need to go back and fix Linus's speech in a Charlie Brown's Christmas, but not so fast. And here's where this gets interesting. All angelic proclamations in Jewish literature written in the Greco-Roman period, and we have a number of them, all of them are based on two passages from the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. One of them is from Ezekiel 3, where Ezekiel has seen his vision of the heavenly chariot, and he hears the angelic beings proclaim, blessed be the Lord from his place. The second one is from Isaiah 6.3. And in Isaiah 6.3, we have the angels flying around the divine throne saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. These two biblical passages form the basis of all angelic proclamation within ancient Jewish literature of the Greco-Roman period. Holy, holy, holy. Notice a three-part holy. Now, what's really interesting is when we look at the Aramaic Targum. Now, a Targum was a translation of the Hebrew Bible Old Testament from Hebrew into Aramaic, but it's more than a translation. It is actually also an interpretation. And when we look at the Aramaic Targum of Isaiah 6-3 and the proclamation of the angelic beings, listen to it. Holy in the highest heaven, the house of his presence. Glory to God in the highest. Holy upon the earth, the work of his might. And on earth, peace. 
Holy for endless ages is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of the brightness of his glory. Goodwill, literally divine favor to men. Now, I inserted in there the three-part proclamation from Luke 2.14. Let me read the, the Aramaic version again without that insertion. Holy in the highest of heaven, the house of his presence. Holy upon the earth, the work of his might. Holy for endless ages is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of the brightness of his glory. Again, glory to God in the highest. Holy in the highest of heaven, the house of his presence. On earth peace, holy upon the earth, the work of his might. Goodwill, literally divine favor to mankind. Holy for endless ages is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of the brightness of his glory. See how it fits? What's even further evidence to this is in what becomes eventually the third benediction of the daily prayer, the 18 benedictions, what is called in Hebrew the Amidah. And even to this day, Orthodox Jews will pray the Amidah multiple times a day. And the third benediction, which its antiquity goes back into the Hellenistic period, is called the Kedushat, or the sanctification. And once again, we have the appearance of Isaiah 6.3. And the Kedushat, or the sanctification, reads, we will sanctify your name in this world as it is sanctified in the highest of heavens, as it is written by your prophet. And they call out to one another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Those facing them praise God saying, Blessed be the Lord in his place. That's the quotation of Ezekiel that I mentioned in Ezekiel 3.12. And in your holy word it is written, The Lord reigns forever, your God, O Zion, throughout all generations. Hallelujah. Quoting Psalm 146.10. So notice here we have the three-part angelic proclamation of Isaiah 6. We have Ezekiel 3. And we also have the mention of God's reign in Psalm 146. A work written in the first century B.C., what is called the Psalms of Solomon, has a passage that reads, To us and to our children, O Lord, our Savior, be your good will. It's the same Greek word as the three-part angelic proclamation in Luke. Be your good will forever. We shall not be moved forever. So which is it? Well, I think that when you look within the context of Luke chapter 2, the angels have said to the shepherds that this is a message of good news which will be for all humankind. There is not a sectarian exclusivity to the angelic proclamation. In other words, God's peace is not only for those who are the sons or the men of his will. Rather, the proclamation that the angels give the shepherds is that 
with the birth of this babe in Bethlehem, not only is God's glory being proclaimed, his peace is breaking out on the earth, but his goodwill, his divine favor is reaching out for all mankind. Now, this isn't an issue just that, well, I, I like the three-part one better, and and I like the theology of the three-part one better, and, and I want to keep my, my Charlie Brown Christmas. That's not what this is about. It's about a methodology that recognizes, even though I may have similar vocabulary within the world of ancient Judaism, and it could even be that some of those theological sentiments reflected among the sectarian Dead Sea Scrolls influenced scribes that altered the angelic proclamation, taking it to the two-part, glory to God in the highest, peace among men of his will. But it's methodological. My decision and my choice here is based upon the realization that all angelic hymns written in Jewish literature in the Greco-Roman period are based on Isaiah 6.3 and Ezekiel 3.12. Holy, holy, holy. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth. Goodwill towards all mankind. I'm Mark Turnage, and this has been the Windows into the Bible podcast. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, I want to invite you to rate, review, subscribe, and share. This actually helps us to grow our audience. So again, if you're enjoying what we're doing, please remember to rate us, to review us, to subscribe to the podcast, and to share it with your friends. One other thing I want to encourage you to do is I actually wrote a book, Windows into the Bible. It's available on Amazon, and this book provides case studies that help you to better learn the four windows, spatial, historical, cultural, and spiritual, and how those contexts can help you better understand the words of the Bible. So check it out on Amazon, Windows into the Bible, and don't forget to rate us, review us, subscribe and share. Thank you all so much. You've been listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. If you have questions related to this episode, tweet them to us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. You can also find resources related to this and other episodes at WITBpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.